This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with a man known as Prof D. Prof D teaches the infamous death class here at MSU for the Honors College. And my friend Haley, who happens to be Prof D's TA and student fellow, also joined us. Prof D grew up in the Bronx during the 60s, and during the session, he mentions his book, The Rail, which retells his coming-of-age story and the trials it entails. I just have to say that the amount of energy and character this man has is amazing. And if you ever find yourself with a chance to meet him or take one of his classes, I highly suggest it. So to set the scene, we met with Prof D on the third floor of a new building here on campus. There's a Buddha statue on the shelf, sad, sullen, and a little wire man pushing a gigantic rock across the windowsill. I guess I'll start. So you're known as Prof D. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell how you find yourself at MSU? Okay. Short yeah. introduction. <laughs> I'm Prof D. I found myself at MSU uh, because I fell in love with a woman who brought me to Montana. And I always wanted, well, I had been teaching college in California and I just continued when I got here. Wow. Yes, I came to Montana sight unseen. And just moved up here. You just, got lucky. <laughs> we, oh, I got lucky for eight years, and then we parted company, oh. <laughs> and uh, you know, now life goes on. Why did people call you Prof D? Because I make them. I make them call me Prof D because I want to be hip and contemporary. I want to be <laughs> young. I'm I'm getting old by the minute. So I say, if you want to get an A, you call me Prof D. Otherwise, out the classroom. Is that really how it started? Yeah. Yeah, I made I made it up, mm -hmm. but it stuck, right? And well, it yeah, because seems to be fitting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how contemporary I am, but it's you know the students like it, yeah. and we have fun with it, and you know they don't probably I imagine they don't have a lot of other professors with weird odd nicknames, so yeah. it works and it's easy for them to remember, and me too <laughs> actually. Nice. And then Haley, when did you take his class? Or how I was, never did. You never did. We what? ran into each other often my sophomore year because one of my best friends had taken your class, and so I was just this odd man out when he would introduce and just say hello to her, because every student knows you who has taken your class, and you know every student who has taken your class, and just. The community that follows Prof D around <laughs> campus is a is bit Is there wild. such a thing? Yes. Oh my God, I had no idea. See, this is this is what I'm saying. Is like everyone's like, oh, you should do like, you should interview Prof D. And I was like, who is this man? Why does he go by this name? If if you were to walk across campus, how many people would would say hello to you? Twenty or thirty. Mm -hmm. You know, when I used to walk from the garage to Quad F, where, where the honors office used to be, I'd be late for class because I'd be talking to people right. all the way through there. So, yeah, there's some something to that. And we, Haley and I met when she became a student fellow nice. for the Text and Critics. And unlucky for her, she got me. <laughs> and we've been wrestling ever since. It's been a horrific <laughs> semester, actually. I'll probably go on medication over the summer just to recover. <laughs> Um, so you teach, one of the classes you teach here, what is, 
It's called. Haley has it quoted I, as I call the death it the class. Death class. Everybody calls it the death class. Uh, yeah. Why did you decide to teach that? What drew you to that? Well, my uh, degree in psychology dissertation is on mortality and the, the impact that our awareness of our impending mortality has on how we relate as humans to one another, how we relate to the environment, how we relate as nations, etc., etc. So since I wrote my dissertation, I've always been interested in mortality. And my father passed away when I was eight. So there's been this lingering question that sits on my shoulder about what happened, why, you know, all those questions that little kids ask when someone passes away. And then I had the chance to create my own syllabus based on the research that I did. And that became the Death Becomes Us class. And it's true, they all called it the death class. And it makes people, they say it in the hall, I want to be in your death class. And 20 people look around, that's kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's the death class now. I'll teach it, in, I teach it every fall. Okay. So this will be the fifth semester I'm teaching. Cool. And then, so I'm always interested in how people's up, like childhood and upbringing, how that manifests its, itself into their adult lives. So do you, how much of, your, your father's death at a young age, how much do you think that played into your, not obsession, but interest with mortality? <laughs> it might be obsession by now. I mean, <laughs> I tell people there's not a single day goes by where I don't think about death in some form. That is so weird. Either my, Sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> either my own, or I see roadkill, or I hear about a death, or I wonder about fixing the syllabus in my class, or I think about books and movies and poems about death. So I'm, I'm in the world of death every single day in some way, shape, or form. So I imagine, I think what really, my, the combination of my father's death and my mother's inability to talk about it for like four or five years set this tone of mystery and you don't talk about those things. And... Um, I probably spent my entire adult life trying to work that out at some level. Mm. You know, I, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City in 1950s and 60s and early 70s before I left for good. So all of that upbringing shapes mm -hmm. who I am. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say you don't. You have an accent, like. No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely it's there's a residual accent <laughs> there. I would say maybe. You're, you're very kind. <laughs> I think it comes out in anger and. And when you're excited about something, then you can really hear the accent. It does. Or when I want to tease the freshmen and text and critics, I can amp it up a little bit. And they're like, well, especially fall semester, because everyone gets jaded by a spring semester. They think they, they got <laughs> locked and loaded about MSU. So it's a little curious. <laughs> they don't pay much attention. It's like, oh, my God, there he goes again. That poor guy just clinging onto the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> But freshmen in the fall are, are much more in, intimidated. Yeah. And so I play it to the hilt. <laughs> does it does it ever get like depressing to think about death all the time? Absolutely not. It's absolutely enlightening and liberating. Mm -hmm. Because suddenly it's not so scary. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, there's always a gap between the concept of death and when you're actually facing it. So mm -hmm. who knows how 
I or anyone else would actually feel in that moment. I might be terrified. I might be finally happy to go. I might be numb. I mean, I think from this vantage point right now, I think I would, I would greet it as uh, a friend, a transition, a mystery mm -hmm. of some kind that's mm -hmm. about to embrace me. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but you did some work with hospice. I did. How did that how did that change your your views on on death and like the progression into that state where you have six months to live and, and knowing those patients if you didn't know any patients on hospice? Well I was the community liaison for one of the hospice groups here. Right. And that meant doing advertising, you know, letting people know that our services exist, but it also meant signing people up for hospice in their homes or in the hospital or in the assisted living place. Uh, so that's where I saw the theory of my dissertation come into play because people wrestle with death in very different ways. You know, um, some are scared again, some are, some are feel freedom. Um, I think it just solidified my my understanding that that death sits on our shoulders all the time. And if we choose to look at it and speak with it, a lot of different things can happen. Uh, I, we can approach our lives differently. We can approach our relationships differently. So I'm always excited to talk about death at some level. I think it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. And we're the only critters that we're aware of that know that we will die someday. So that has got to color how we... Uh, navigate the world. Mm -hmm. At least that's what the research says. Were there any particularly striking cases? I think for me, one of the most striking cases, well, there were two. There was a couple and the man was dying and uh, they were refusing hospice. They were scared. It's like, once you sign on to hospice, you're actually saying, yes, I am going to die. So that's a huge psychological and emotional leap. So finally they did, and hospice had gone there for a couple of weeks, and we came to do some follow-up to see how it was going. And they were a completely changed couple. They felt so amazingly at ease and health, because they had, without hospice, they were turning in on each other, because they were scared, they were over stressed, they were overworked. So that, that example made, made me a big fan of hospice in general. The other example was an older couple, and we were called to sign the husband up for hospice, and we went to the house, and he was in the next room. We were in the living room, he was in the bedroom. And this is where the struggle uh, of admitting mortality comes into play. Just before she would sign the papers to give her husband hospice, he would moan and she would race out of the room and then come back and say, I can't, I can't, I can't sign these papers. Mm. And then he would moan and she would run in there. And run. This went on for hours. I was there with the hospice nurse who was in charge of the medical part of it. And finally she signed it, but he died two days later. You know, the hospice care could have been uh, given weeks and weeks and weeks earlier. And it was just a difficult to admit that your loved one's about to pass away is a difficult admittance. Mm -hmm. So that, that sort of confirmed to me that we, we wrestle with this at both unconscious and conscious levels. So that's why I find it fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think it shapes human behavior in amazingly 
radical ways. Mm. I always think it's interesting, like, personally, I don't fear death, but I know I would feel, I would feel more terrified, more emotion attached to a death of a brother or sister or a loved one than my own, knowing, like, I'm expiring. Mm. And I I don't know why that is, but I think there's something, maybe something about human psychology that says, like, maybe it's a personality trait being like, oh, I don't matter, but these people matter so much more to me. Um, well, I, you know, I know Sigmund Freud early on said that the human psyche cannot wrap its self around our own mortality. So mm -hmm. that might be a, a buffer of some kind. I taught my death is death becomes us class in the community with mm -hmm. uh, 30 people older than me uh, for a six weeks wonderlust class. Um, and it was fascinating to be talking about people who were closer to death, you know, at least theoretically, because mm -hmm. they were all in their 60s and 70s and a couple of 80-year-olds. Um, and, th and that was fascinating. And most of them, here's what they had to say. They said, I want my life to have meaning, so someone please tell me that my life had meaning. And two, I don't want to suffer. But to a person, no one seemed to be particularly frightened of death per se. But it was absence of pain and knowing that they had contributed something along the way, whether that was in the community or in their families or whatever. Mm -hmm. That seemed to be an important piece for them. What are, what are some of the ways that death shapes how we live every day? Well, here's, the, here's what the research says. If you remind people of mortality, like bring it to their consciousness, they will cling to their core values and act from that place with a lot of intensity. For example, one of the experiments was to ask two groups of judges to set bail for prostitutes who had been arrested in Tucson, Arizona. The group that wasn't reminded of their mortality set the bail at $50, which was the standard fee. The group that was reminded of their mortality set the bail at over $800 because their core values and their core morality was activated by the reminder of mortality. Mm -hmm. There's hundreds and hundreds of experiments like this around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the converse is also true, that if you attack people's core values, they don't experience it as simply a difference of opinion. They experience it as a mortal threat, and they will come out swinging. So it's, I think understanding that part of it is, is it helps us understand why sometimes dialogue is so difficult. Because you can't just go at people's core values and tell them they're wrong. Because mm -hmm. they feel like they're going to die at some deep level. So. Mm -hmm. So I think at, at that basic level, mortality shapes us, whether we're reminded of it and we act from that place or whether we're core values are threatened and we push back because we feel like we're being threatened at a, at a fundamental level. Yeah. So the book to read, if you want to, is called The Worm at the Core by Sheldon Solomon. It's based on a quote uh, from the famous psycho American psychologist William James, he says, death is the worm at the core of the apple of life, right? We eat that beautiful apple, we're 
in our prime, we're outdoors climbing mountains, but somewhere in that apple, the worm of death awaits us. So, yeah. Should we talk a little bit about Mr. Solomon? It's up to you. You guys are questioning me. You got to meet him. Is that correct? My last semester class, the Death Becomes Us class, I had talked to them during the semester and I said, this is one of my mentors. We talked by email. We've never met. We've never talked on the phone. And, you know, I was just describing my relationship with him. And, you know, for a while I used to send him all my, because part of the class is people have to do, design an experiment based on their, the experiments I just described to you. And we would just share emails. Oh, yeah, this is an interesting experiment. Oh, we did some of this like this. Check this one out, et cetera, et cetera. So unbeknownst to me, at the end of the semester, they're showing me a video. They're all on video saying what they got out of the class. And then at the end of the class, they say, by the way, we've arranged for Sheldon Solomon to come out here and speak and meet you. And I was like, oh, crying. And, so they sent, you know, they contacted Honors. They paid, Honors paid for a plane ticket. We got him a hotel. And he and I, he's also from the Bronx, oddly enough, which I didn't know. Um, so we hung out. And he did a class, a special class with the group who got him out here. Then he did a master class with everyone who's ever taken a death class was invited. And then he did a talk in the Inspiration Hall about his work with community members, students, faculty, etc. But it was an unbelievable gift and it was very touching to me because the students did that and it meant something really uh, important. Yeah. And he was an incredible character. We had so much fun together. <laughs> yeah. So he talks, he thinks about death every day also. And we talked about how, uh, how, how, how that process or that meditation, as I might call it, creates a certain equanimity in the face of uh, this crazy thing called life. Yep. So how, I mean, how do you go about being a mentor now <clears throat> to other students and people in your life? Mentoring students? Yes. I don't mentor students. Mm. <laughs> Here's my philosophy. I... I <laughs> I never think of myself as a mentor because I, I don't know if I do it very actively. What I try to do, because my life has been a series of people helping me in different points. So my idea, I don't know if it's mentoring, I, maybe I call it advocacy. If someone wants a letter of recommendation, if someone wants to chat about something, I'm totally there. Um, so that's what I do. You know, I, I write tons and tons of letters. I talk to people in this office or in a coffee shop about taking a year off, explaining to their parents why they want to change a major, uh, why they think uh, the world sucks. Um, any, there's not, all is fair game. But I guess I call it advocacy. I want them to succeed in what they want to do. And if they need a letter or they need to come talk at a group or whatever, I'm always up for that because every, every step of the way, I got help. Someone uh, vouched for me or advocated for me or celebrated me in some way, got me where I wanted to go to the next, next point in the journey. So I feel like I got to give that back. 
I don't know. You're my TA. You feel mentored? I don't think so. You feel like annoyed. <laughs> no. I, I think, you know, I think it's, it's hard to see from your perspective, but I think certainly almost every student of yours feels comfortable in coming to you. And, and I would argue that you're a mentor to all of your students, mm. where, which is pretty rare for a professor. Mm. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Was there, was there like ever a profound piece of advice given to you that like completely shifted your perspective on life, on death, on how you carry yourself, on your core values? Kind of a loaded question, but... <laughs> well, it's, it's not so loaded. It's just that I, I can't think of a single, like, a quote or yeah. a moment. I mean, there's been a whole series of moments. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I wasn't really interested in death until I was in grad school. So it's not like it's mm -hmm. always been a part of my life at a conscious level. Mm -hmm. And it was capricious. I was going to write a dissertation on uh, justice. It made sense to me. I was active in the 60s. I was anti-Vietnam. I was pro-civil rights. I was pro-feminism. Mm -hmm. So that made sense. And then one day I was at a friend's house and we were talking and talking. I was just about to leave. And out of the blue, he said, he walks to his bookshelf and he pulls down a book. He says, you might like this. And he tosses it to me. It's like in the movies. It's going in slow motion. It's like some great message is going to land in my lap. <laughs> and boom, the Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, Pulitzer Prize winning. This is the, the Ernest Becker that my mentor, Sheldon Solomon, based all his experiments on. Out of the blue, I never heard of the book. And I was like, I'll take it home. I couldn't put it down over a weekend. It felt like doors opened. People rolled rocks away from caves. I mean, explanations rained down on me. I was like, this was meant for me. This must be my message. And that was in 2000 and five I guess so mm -hmm. from that moment on for the next 14 years I've been immersed consciously this time in death mm -hmm. so that book alone was a, a magical book um, you know and the, and the Bronx was a shaping thing right I had to figure out I was in the 50s and 60s right mm -hmm. I had to figure out what is masculinity what is a tough guy what is this what is that uh, and I grew up in a neighborhood that was all Jewish and I was not so that was a navigation, and I grew up in a very dysfunctional household, and my neighborhood and my friends became my family. So that also shaped me. Um, but I'm not sure I got any, I mean, <laughs> maybe the most profound piece of advice was when I was having trouble with drugs in 1972, a friend of mine drove past the playground and said, anyone going to California, I'm going to California, does anyone want to come? And I knew in that moment when he said that, I, either I go or I die here in the Bronx. It was that heavy. And I said, give me one hour. I went home, packed my bags, jumped in his car, and never came back to the Bronx to live ever again. Wow. Yeah. I wrote a book about it. What's the name of the book? <laughs> I feel well, like you should ask. <laughs> I feel like you should tell it. <laughs> it's out on the shelf there. It's called The Rail, which was a fence that we all the teenagers used to hang out on. Okay. And it's called The Rail, What Was Really Doing in the 60s Bronx. So it's my coming-of-age memoir oh. from age 0 to 21 when I drove away. The last scene in the book is me driving away with my friend, wow. never to come back again and never to use drugs again. Wow. 
Wow. So it was a profound escape moment. You know, sometimes you are confronted with a choice that has no logic to it. There's no definite end goal. It just says you have this option. And I don't know, sometimes you just have to use your intuition and say, I'm going to trust and, and see where this takes me. But I knew it was like life or death in that moment. Because people were overdosing, people were getting arrested. And it was just a bad time in the Bronx in the 70s. What was the process like for you to write the book? Oh. Well, it took me four years because I can't write when I'm doing school. I just don't. I'm reading or I'm grading papers. So the book took four years, which was mostly weekends, school breaks, and summers. Uh, and I wanted to write a love story to the neighborhood that nurtured me because, like I said, the house was dysfunctional, the neighborhood was home. So um, I tried to do that. So it's just a, a you know, story from, <laughs> I was born on a dark and stormy night to I went to California and everything in between. Uh, I think it's probably about 200 pages too long, mm -hmm. but I needed to get that out. Yeah. Is it 205 pages? What? <laughs> Well, that's almost mean. No, it was a weird statement, just the 200 pages. No, it's, it's, it's almost 400 pages. Okay. Three-something, I think. But, you know, I, I had a lot to say. It's also very detailed. I think it's, the book is a little schizophrenic between, like, a history and a, a personal memoir. Because uh, I, I grew up in a very unusual neighborhood. It's all Jewish. It was the first cooperative housing um, outside of some, you know, religious groups um, in America. 1929, they built these, started to build these cooperative buildings. And they built them all through the 50s, yeah, up in the North Bronx. I mean, I had an 1,100-acre park on one side. I had a giant reservoir on the other side. These buildings, most of these buildings look like English Tudor style with uh, beautiful roofs, brick vines of ivy going up the sides. It's idyllic. Mm, yeah. No one thinks of a neighborhood like this in the Bronx. They think of poverty and fires and tenements and vacant lots. I grew up in paradise, even though it was bumpy as a kid. Okay. I thought you were going to say something. No, I'm just like, that's so cool. Like I love, I love hearing about people's past and their perception of their past and how that you know, and then here they are sitting in front of you here today. And I know that's only part of the story, but mm -hmm. I think people's upbringing and their interpretation of their upbringing just affects who they be, who they develop into so much. And like, I find that aspect of, of life fascinating, you know, and I'm sure if you're looking at death, you can like kind of like retrograde or like mm -hmm. reverse engineer your life to be... <laughs> to be more fulfilling in a way, but... I think, I think people do that. I, I think of my relationship with my father, like I said, who died at eight, when I was eight. I was grieving him, but he was absent. My parents had already separated a couple of years before he even died, so I had seen him less and less. And he was born in Ireland, right? He was born in 1900, my father. He was 50 when I was born. Uh, but I, had, I did that reverse engineering over decades. I missed him, I was curious about him, I hated him. I wondered where he went. I was pissed off, thought he was a drunk. I went to Ireland and heard stories from Irish people about 
when he grew up in Ireland, what was going on, and broke my heart open. I, you know, I gained new respect, and so you know now a lot of those pieces of the father-son relationship are, I think, more in context now that I'm mm-hmm. older. But all those gyrations of trying to figure out what my relationship was, and it that relationship or the images of that relationship changing as I learned more about what he had to face as a human. Mm-hmm. So that, that opened my mind and my heart in different ways. So, yeah. What happens after death? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Do you want my opinion? Yeah, I do. I mean, nobody knows. So, um, I think that's it, man. There's nothing happens after death. What about all these stories you hear that when people come back to life and they're like, went to heaven or like, I went to like a third world and there was light at the end of the tunnel and I felt this immense peace. So you hear these stories of people dying on the operating table and it's like I was floating above my body and I could see the surgeon cutting into me, but I felt no pain mm-hmm. and so much peace. And you're just like, is that what? I have no doubt that those are absolutely all true stories. Huh. But that, it, it doesn't change my my sense that once you're gone, you're gone. Right. Um, I mean, when I first came across the denial of death by Ernest Becker, I was so <laughs> so crazed that I, I felt like I was going to march out there and enlighten people. Everybody dies. Get. Get used to it. There's nothing after that. Ah, you know, throw your religion underground, your spirituality. Get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, after a few months of that, of being a zealot, uh, I realized, look, we, we have all these creative, imaginative ways of coping with life and death. Why would I try to disabuse people of that? You know, as long as it's not an imposition, as long as someone says, you know, I'm going to kill you to to to, to sh- I'm going to kill you to keep myself alive or trample on your belief system because mine is better. It doesn't matter what people do. Yeah. You know, I think it's creative and imaginative. But again, nobody knows. I don't know. I mean, I could die and and then I look back and I'm in, you know, I'm in ghost, right? I'm ta- trying to talk <laughs> to my people and tap my girlfriend on the shoulder and, and no one's paying attention. I mean, who knows. Uh <laughs> I'm sure it will be the, but I think it's the end of experience. Uh, and I don't think our consciousness goes. I think at best, maybe, you know, because energy is neither created nor destroyed, we become some different form or we nurture something else or <laughs> we get stuck in a building, you know, I don't know. But yeah, I don't worry about it so much about what's after. Yeah. I worry about living my life with. Uh, some consciousness and presence so the days aren't wasted. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, it's like you wake up and you say, or I say, I could die today. How do I want to live? I mean, that's not a bad meditation at times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're done? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great place to stop. I don't know. Whatever yeah, you guys 30 want. 30 minutes, man. <laughs> like, Is that what your podcasts usually are? 30? They're usually 45, but 
Whatever you guys want to chat about. Do you have one? Do you have one last question? Anything on your question list? You have a question list? I didn't know that. I thought you were just grading papers over there. You're gonna edit all this? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on how I how I feel about it. Sometimes this is the best part. These are the most beautiful, authentic mm. interactions, and you know, you want to talk about like feeling accomplished at the end of the day. I think capturing a conversation with some depth and some mm. clarity and sharing that with other people that's kind of what this is. Mm. And so I feel like the more authentic the more unscripted the better it is okay well, that, i think that makes sense i yeah. think that's very beautifully put although when, when i hear myself <laughs> talking i think my god is he rambling well people must like hearing you talk i mean you're clear you're one of the most popular professors in the honors college what what year is this giving the speech in a row it's like the ninth semester in a row <laughs> yeah. of giving the commencement speech at right. honors graduation <laughs> so people who might not know it's nominated it's a position that's nominated by the students and every year somehow you end up getting it do you just Since recycle the speech hell no okay. every speech is absolutely contemporary okay. and different i can't stand recycled speeches Darn. i mean even if i decided to recycle a framework i would have to make it current mm -hmm. but no i don't i don't abide by that but i'm always very honored and it's starting to get embarrassing is it a little i mean there's plenty of other people who can speak and speak well, and speak funny, and speak seriously, and speak, um, you know, movingly and inspirationally. So it's a little curious. You know, I've, I've thought about not having my name on the list for the last couple of semesters, but I, I just kept going. Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to be an egomaniac. <laughs> right. But I like the speeches, and I'm, I'm very honored that the students vote me to do it. Yeah. Why do you think they vote for you? What is this, some psychological profile question? No, I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I don't know exactly. Or maybe I'm just afraid to be an egomaniac and say why. Mm -hmm. um, I think they like to hear someone who's willing to be honest. I mean, if, if they've had any interaction with me in the classroom or one-on-one, -on -one, I'm going to tell them the truth as I understand it um, to the best of my ability. And, you know, maybe some people respond to that and appreciate that. I don't know. I mean, my speeches are not particularly funny. Yeah. They're serious and sometimes pretty heavy. Well, people crave that, I think. Yeah, perhaps. So I don't know. Or maybe, I mean, maybe I don't even know half the graduates. So maybe they just heard mm. and they, that my name is in their brain. So they say, oh, I it's heard this. It's a nickname. This. Yeah, it's Prof D. It's the nickname. <laughs> I heard of that guy. Let's check him off. I never heard of these other people. Well, the interesting thing is, is that you're not even listed on the list as Prof D. So even the people who might have heard that nickname wouldn't maybe identify your your real name. What am I on the list as? Your full name. Oh, the real name. Yeah. Dang. You think the list puts you as Prof D? I thought so. I don't know. Well, I mean, I asked myself, too. I, I voted for you. I don't know why I did, really. Well, thanks, I wanted, Haley. I think I wanted to listen to you talk. I don't know. <laughs> you listen to me talk all semester long. It's got to be boring by now. Yeah. Um, so they put my real name on there. Oh, shit, there goes the witness protection program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been outed. I know. Dang. 
So I think another final question we had was... Uh, How can you have more than one final question? Oh. Okay, this is the final question. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, what motivates you to get up every day? What motivates why, me yeah. to get up every day? Yeah, why do you do all this? The alarm clock goes off and I spring out of bed. Why do I do all of this? Because yes. I, I made a plan when I went back to graduate school that I would finish my life as a teacher. And I absolutely, positively, crazy as this sounds, adore freshmen. They are unique. They are unusual critters. They, they, they're like three months removed from high school and they're trying to figure it out. And I love being part of that process. I love teasing them. I love helping them. I love hopefully, quote unquote, inspiring them. It's just, it's the best gig ever for me. And I've done a lot of weird, different jobs, so I, I love being in the classroom. The deaf class has a different feel to it because they're usually seniors and juniors. So the conversations are different. But that first semester of freshmen, oh, my God. I, I would do this for free. Square business. That's what gets me up. I like what I do, and I like the freshmen that I do it with. Mm. That's it. Thank you. We good? <laughs> yeah, we're good. Are you feeling good about this? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sure my voice sounds weird and it's all rambly. Perhaps. But you guys. I, no. You guys, will, you guys will edit it and make me sound like uh, Nat King Cole. <laughs> Are you going to say something funny? No, I was just looking <laughs> at the um, suffering Buddha here. And Sisyphus. And Sisyphus. And is that Glacier? Glacier? I don't know where that is. It's a, I gave a speech last Friday and they gave me a thank you card. Right. The National Society of Collegiate Scholars had an induction, so they drafted me. I was like, all right, I'll speak. Mm -hmm. So we spoke about community and leadership and scholarship. How did you end it? How did you end the speech? Oh, God, I can't remember. I said I, I, <laughs> I said, I hope this coming year is filled with wonder. Thank you. <laughs> namaste, yo. Did you say that? I always say namaste, yeah. yo. Uh -huh. You Just also it say, sounds weird. say the thing that's horribly cringy that, that you claim is French, but it's really not. I'm not even going to say it because it hurts me. French? Yeah. But you don't say it in the French way. What is it? C'est la vie. Oh, c'est la vie. Yeah, yeah oh God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> That's Bronx speak. We always say that in the Bronx. C'est la vie, dog. Yeah. Pasta fazul. I know it hurts me. It hurts well, my French soul. You know what they say in Russia? I don't. I'm not saying it. All right. <laughs> this was the weirdest interview I've ever had. What? No. You guys were fun. Come on.